Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Amen. Please be seated. And uh, if you turn to page 1051 in the Church Bibles, we're going to continue the series in Luke's Gospel. So Luke chapter 17, it's page 1051. And we're going to pick up from verse 11. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus travelled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Well, let me pray for us. Father, we feel our great need. Life is difficult and complex. Situations can be painful. But in our great need, we know that you have abundance to give us. And so we pray that your spirit would so lead us through the scriptures that we might know Christ afresh and honour you as our Heavenly Father. For your name's sake. Amen. Well, if you visit any great city, it's easy to be intoxicated by the sheer ingenuity and beauty and wonder of human achievement. My wife and I visited London the other weekend, and it's fair to say that we enjoyed a weekend of a mixed cultural diet. From Evensong at Westminster Abbey to a meal at the First Dates restaurant just near St Paul's, the magnificent Gothic architecture of Westminster Palace, to the ventriloquist comedian Nina Conti and her talking monkey. Street rapping at Piccadilly Circus, we were watching rather than performing, and then climbing over 300 metres to the top of the Shard, which is the highest building in the UK. Stomach-turning views of this ancient and remarkable city. So I have to say, whilst I hugged the internal walls of the viewing gallery, uh, Linda was right up by the glass viewing uh, panes, looking down over this amazing city, plunging views of the road below and breathtaking views of the city from above. 
And yet, actually, it was the views in the West that drew the crowds on the viewing platform. Not the city below, but the sunset above. Not the achievements of humanity, but the wonder of something, perhaps the work of someone, a vision of something so staggering in beauty and power and wonder that it seems to dwarf all human achievements. What is it about a sunset that leaves you wondering whether there is something more? Someone more. Someone who gives you every beat of your heart and every breath of your lungs. Now maybe it's because we live on this side of the city, but you know wealth and privilege and education can so seduce you that you believe the myth of every X Factor audition. That there is nothing you can't achieve if you put your mind to it. That your destiny is only as small as your dreams. Truth be told, there are lots of us who are honey G's in our hearts. But in the real world, in the real world, both the successful and the sorrowful sometimes experience shards of divine grace. Gifts so Wonderful, so undeserved, so amazing that believer and skeptic and atheist wonder from where they come. And maybe from whom? Now, sometimes it is the wonder of creation. So, even an atheist like Richard Dawkins asks, why? Why, when you go to the Grand Canyon and you see the strata of geological time laid out before you, Why is there something that brings a feeling and leaves you close to tears? Sometimes it's the joy of friendship. Camping with mates at a music festival or laughing over a meal with friends or kicking a ball around a field. Moments when you connect with someone. When you don't feel alone. When you don't feel alone in this world that is full of so much suffering and sadness. Moments when time itself seems to stand still and you feel this is what life was meant to be. Sometimes it's the beauty of music. Beatles, Bono, Bach. It was actually the music of Bach that persuaded the atheist writer A.N. Wilson to return to Christianity. He said the existence of language and love and music suggest that human beings are very much more than a collection of meat. See, whether our achievements are massive or modest, whether life feels marked by success or scarred by suffering, all of us sometimes feel we are recipients of undeserved gifts. And that perhaps, as C.S. Lewis put it, these gifts are only the scent of a flower that we have not found. The echo of a tune we have not heard. News from a country we have never yet visited. As the artist Dante Gabriel Rossetti wistfully commented, the worst moment for an atheist is when he is truly thankful but has nobody to thank. 
And yet, according to Jesus, whether we are thankful or thankless, thankful to God or thankless in unbelief, whether we turn from him in proud independence or turn to him in humble worship, thankfulness or thanklessness will determine the course of our entire lives. More than that, they will determine our destiny in eternity. And so it was, chapter 17 of Luke, for these 10 men who Jesus met along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Luke records this short incident as Jesus continues, verse 11, on his way to Jerusalem. It's a journey that actually began way back in Luke's account in chapter 9. A journey with a very clear destination but plenty of intentional diversions. A journey that was characterized by compassion and yet dominated by controversy. And a journey that reveals time and time and time again the fundamental human problem that only a divine gift can resolve. Verse 11, now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. Now, leprosy in the Bible seems to be a catch-all term for a variety of infectious skin diseases. And actually, the, the significance is far more readily recoverable from the biblical text than any diagnosis. To be leprous was, in Bible language, to be unclean. And to be unclean was to be forced to live outside of the community, outside the village, exactly where Jesus finds these ten men. Of course, the idea that anybody could be unclean in the 21st century has become comic fodder for a multitude of religious cynics. But the reality of being unclean in the first century was very far from a laughing matter. See, here were ten men whose skin condition left them isolated. Despised, feared, separated from family and friends, their only community, a sad and sorry band of brothers wandering the borders of Samaria and Galilee. So no surprise that, end of verse 12, they stood at a distance from Jesus. Standing at a distance is what they did. It's how they lived their lives. And so verse 13, they called out in a loud voice, doubtless not just in the hope that they might be heard, but in the desperate hope that they might be healed. Now, I don't know, maybe an enlightened modern medic might dismiss their shout as the hopeless cries of the credulous and gullible. But if you've never stood in the shoes of the desperate, maybe you don't understand the enormity of their need. But if you have journeyed through the dark night of the soul and if you haven't one day you will if you have ever journeyed through the dark night of the soul when circumstance and sorrow have left you feeling alone and helpless and desperate you will understand their cry verse 13 Jesus master have pity on us Of course, their cry is born of personal tragedy, and yet it precipitates a moment of very public tension. 
For every time Jesus opens his mouth or reaches out his hand to touch, he seems to provoke wonder and outrage in equal measure. So the question is here and now, what will Jesus do? Will the one who has healed before heal again? There certainly seems to be some sort of expectation from these men that perhaps he can do something, that maybe he will do something. It's hard to tell how much they knew about the true identity of Jesus. Perhaps they had heard of his condemnation of the religious establishment. His compassion for the lost. Maybe word had reached them that here was a man who could mend the broken and heal the sick and forgive the guilty. But whatever they knew, they knew enough to recognize that maybe there was hope for them in Jesus. Verse 13. So they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And what follows is surprising in all sorts of ways. There is firstly the surprise of Jesus' power. For the one who had healed with a touch now seems able to heal with just a word. Now, of course, to us, Jesus' words in verse 14 seem somewhat cryptic. But to the men themselves, Jesus' words offered the most tantalizing glimpse of hope. For if you were healed of your leprosy under the Old Testament law, you needed to go to the priest for the healing to be confirmed. And if the healing was confirmed, well, it would be life, life, like life starting again. To be cleansed, healed, restored, restored to family, to friends, to the community. Verse 14, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And yet if Jesus' words seem initially cryptic, I suspect that for many it's the miraculous healing that is the real problem. Of course, if Jesus really is who he claimed to be, what is surprising is less that Jesus was able to heal these men and much more that he should choose to do so. For the reality of Jesus' miracles seems no less extraordinary to me than contemporary scientific explanations of our origins. So as the non-Christian philosopher Jim Holt puts it, we rationalists accept propositions about the early universe which boggle the mind more than any biblical miracles do. Your mind can intuitively grasp the notion of a dead man coming back to life again as people do in deep comas. But to believe that the universe immeasurably vast as it appears to be, was once compressed into a tiny space, that is in truth very hard to believe. I'm not saying that I can disprove the equations that back it up. I'm just saying that it is as much a matter of faith to accept that. See, lay behind childhood prejudice and media caricature and one of the first things that strikes you as you read through the accounts of Jesus' life is both his compassion and his power. Not only that he wants to mend broken lives, but that he is capable of doing so, verse 13. Astonishing. Just a word. 
a new life, a new beginning, a fresh start. See, always the question in the Gospels, it seems to me, is the same. Who? Who is this man? Who is this Jesus? Teacher? Miracle worker? Prophet? For the Old Testament promised a rescuer king who alone cleanses the unclean and brings them home, who alone forgives the guilty and gives them a fresh start, who alone restores the sorrowful so that, as Isaiah put it, gladness and joy overtake them and sorrow and sighing flee away. And every moment of Jesus' life, from his birth to his death, persuades you that he is God's promised rescuer king and he can do all that and more for those who see their thanklessness and turn to him in praise. See, there is the surprise of Jesus' power and there is secondly the surprise of human thanklessness. See, all ten men were cleansed, verse 14, or as verse 15 puts it, healed, but only one returns with thanks. Only one man returned. That, That really is surprising, isn't it? Jesus certainly thought so, verse 17. Jesus asked, we're not all ten cleansed. Where where are the other nine? You think, is that really possible? That your life can have been so broken and your circumstances so desperate and your future so bleak and yet with just a word, Jesus heals you and restores you and gives you hope and you remain thankless? After all, these ten men contributed absolutely nothing to their restoration other than to utter their desperate cry for help. Jesus gave ten men their lives back. Health, family, friendship, and only one man returned to say thank you. See, I think this thanklessness is both surprising and unnerving. Surprising in the passage... And unnerving in the shadow that it casts over all of our lives. Because whether we recognize it or not, the Bible teaches that our every waking breath is a gift from God. Our families, our friends, food on the table, water from the tap, sun on our faces, rain on our crops. Everything comes from the hand of a good and generous God. And yet it is the habit of all of us to be thankless. Well, truth is, we easily believe our own publicity. We imagine that all we have is through our own ability and hard work. And yet the Bible's teaching is, what do you have that you did not receive? Your looks, if you have them. I just have gray hair. Your intelligence, if you have it. Your ability to work hard and secure a good job. Your circumstances, all of it. All of it is from the hand of a generous God. And yet we are all repeatedly invariably thankless. As the towering figure, that Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn put it, if I were called upon to identify the principal trait of the entire 20th century, it is men have forgotten God. Or, 
If you prefer your wisdom less bearded and Russian and more yellow and American, Bart Simpson said something very simpler. When asked to say grace at supper time, he said, Dear God, we pay for this all ourselves, so thanks for nothing. Truth is, many of us have forgotten God. And many of us give him, give him thanks for nothing. You know, thankfulness to God is always either suppressed or expressed. It's the same for those of us who call ourselves Christians. You think we should be more than all people, those who are forever thankful. How could it be otherwise when God has given us what we don't deserve in Jesus? How could we not be thankful when it was while we were still sinners without hope and without God in the world? It was when we were God's enemies that Jesus died for us. And yet we are, and I include myself, surprisingly thankless. See, it's kind of understandable because somehow the very real pressures of life crowd out that thankfulness. Yeah, for some here it is the pressures of school, even with a half term next week. For some here it's that constant gnawing anxiety of relationship worries. For some, even in S10, it's the worry about finances or work pressures or health problems waiting for the results of tests. And all those pressures can cause us to forget how kind and generous and patient and loving our Heavenly Father really is. And yet, as the novelist Nate Wilson puts it, gratitude, gratitude is liberation. See the gifts, and if they seem sparse, start counting. And if you feel like you have less than others do, remember as C.S. Lewis put it, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has only God. Jesus, surprising power. Our surprising thankfulness, and finally, one man's surprising praise. See, it was surprising that ten were healed and only one returned with thanks, but it was also surprising that the one who returned with thanks was not the sort of person you might expect, verse 16. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. See, even if you don't know the background, you can tell just by the way Luke writes that a thankful Samaritan was a big surprise. You get the same sense from Jesus' words in verse 18. Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And note, Jesus' use of the word foreigner doesn't expose his prejudice, but other people's. Oh, he's cleansed and restored this man, but the prevailing assumption amongst many of Jesus' listeners, and doubtless amongst many of Luke's first readers, was that a Samaritan was just, well, just not one of us. That he was ethnically different, that he was religiously corrupt, that he was in some sense morally compromised. Samaritans were the outsider, and God couldn't possibly be interested in someone like that, could he? After all, Jesus is for the religious, isn't he? And that's not me. He's for the moral and my life is more mess than merit. He's for those sort of people who go to forward, who know their Bibles back to front and I barely feel I know one end from the other. 
But then you see Jesus' compassion and power. And you wonder at your own thanklessness and you hear this short passage and you begin to wonder, could this Jesus be for me? See, if you look again at this this short but actually very moving account from Jesus' life, you'll see that something more is going on than the healing of a man with an infectious skin disease. Remember verse 11, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Why? To die. The thankful son dying for thankless rebels. And as he travels, he meets the wealthy and the poor, the healthy and the sick, the powerful and the weak, and all of them, whether they realize it or not, all of them stand like these ten lepers at a distance. Helpless. Hopeless. Condemned. And we stand with them too. We who should be so thankful for all that God has given us, we are invariably thankless, separated from each other and estranged from the God who made us. But one of the things we've been seeing over these last few weeks in Luke's gospel is that God is always, always in the business of bringing lost, thankless sinners And here is the story of one man to prove it. You see, he stood at a great distance from Jesus, verse 12. But God restored him, and verse 16, he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. He was unclean, and Jesus cleansed him, verse 14. He was as good as dead. And Jesus effectively raised him to life. See, I think it is only as you come face to face with Jesus in the Gospels that you see how thankless you have been. And it is only in the words of the Saviour that there is hope, verse 17. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Was no one found to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to this man, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. You see, all the gifts, all the gifts that you and I enjoy, friendship, grandchildren, sunshine, music, family, sport, food, beauty, they are, as Ted Turnow puts it, signposts, pointers, pointers to God's mercy and generosity. A sunny day isn't just a sunny day. Good food isn't just good food. It is God's sunny day. God's good food. And he puts them there for a reason. He puts them there for a reason, namely as a way of showing you what kind of God he is. And that repentance and reconciliation with him are possible. And so you come. You come this evening sensing That in your own thanklessness, you are very far from Jesus. And you cry out with these men, Jesus, Master, have pity on me. You need to know. You need to know that he brings those who are far near. Understand that he makes the unclean clean. 
See how he brings the dead back to life. For his words echo down through the centuries to you. Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Let's pray, shall we? I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing together. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, give you most humble and hearty thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all people. We bless you for our creation, preservation and all the blessings of this life but above all for your immeasurable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ. For the means of grace and the hope of glory. Give us, we pray, such a sense of all your mercies that our hearts may be sincerely thankful so that we may show forth your praise not only with our lips but in our lives by giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be all honour and glory forever and ever. Amen.